Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments that you might speak to us, that you might give us attentive hearts to hear your voice and to respond in the appropriate way. Bless this time together as we delve into the, the wonder of your word through the gospel of John. And may it meet the needs for this time in our lives, we ask to your glory. Amen. At the end of chapter 14, having spent time together in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And as we move into the consideration of of chapter 15, we, we understand that this is a journey. Something is happening. The disciples are making their way from the upper room through the heart of the city, perhaps likely taking a, a shortcut through the temple courts, across the Kidron Valley, and then into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they would journey through the temple courts, they would pass the great doors of the temple, the great golden doors. Apparently, they contained so much gold that when the Romans came in AD 70 and destroyed the temple and melted down the doors and that gold flooded the market, the price of gold in the Roman Empire collapsed. So much gold was contained in these great doors. And these great golden doors were carved, carved ornately with the image of a vine. When God gave instruction to uh, Moses in the wilderness to construct the tabernacle, when when God inspired Solomon to be the builder of the, the temple, the imagery of these two constructions was to be filled with with plants and fruit bearing trees. And the idea was that as in Eden, when God had met face to face with Adam and Eve, so in these situations as individuals drew closer to God in worship, they would be surrounded with these botanical symbols. And so the great doors, the temple golden doors, were carved with a vine. A vine, the symbol of the nation of Israel. Now, again, as you look through the Old Testament, you'll find time and time again that reference is made to Israel being a vine or uh, a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 has that theme. The prophet likens Israel to a vineyard. Again, Psalm 80 verses 8 to 18 has a, a lengthy section speaking of the nation of Israel as a vine. But sadly, every time we find that reference... The connotation is that the vine produced sour grapes. The grapes, the fruit that was produced, was unfit for human consumption. They failed consistently time and time again to be all that God had intended them to be. But now, now the greater Israel had come. Now Jesus, the true vine, has entered into the world. And you can use your imagination. Just think of these men journeying through the temple courts, walking past these great golden doors, and Jesus speaks to them and says to them, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. And they would marvel. They would be amazed at the implications of what Jesus is saying to them. That he is their source of identity. 
He is their only basis for confidence, for hope in the world. Nothing else, no one else could be what they needed deeply in life. We know too often believers in many parts of the world, even here in our own province, allow their faith identity to be tied up with their national identity become an element of who they are spiritually. Many people are too comfortably aligning themselves with slogans such as, for God and Ulster. Feeling to realize that there can never be an and after God. And we see Jesus here makes an exclusive claim. We must understand that he's telling us, you know, there are lots of potential vines out there. Potential vines that you might seek from which to draw a source for life. But there is only one true vine. You may be able to find fulfillment in all kinds of activities temporarily. Many of these things might be good, they might be wholesome. But if it's not the true vine, the sustenance that they provide will be short-lived. And there will be no eternal hope for you if you are not connected to this, the true vine. You know this, this is familiar ground to you, but people will say things like, I live for my whatever it is. I live for my family. I live for my job. I I live for my hobby for those days on the golf course or in the garden or I live for the church. Or even a variation of that theme. I feel really alive whenever I. But whatever it is that gives you purpose. Whatever reason you think is your impetus for living. If it is not Jesus, it is not spiritual life. Perhaps some of you have had that misfortune of going to the petrol tanks and forgetting which car you're in. And you filled up your diesel car with petrol or whatever. And it is possible you may get a mile or two down the road, but you'll end up in deep difficulty, perhaps requiring a whole new engine or whatever. And Jesus is saying that he is the true vine. And it is only as we connect to him and we draw resources from him that we will find the power we need, the enabling, the equipping for life in its fullness. Integration with dependence upon any other vine will lead to disaster, will lead to our destruction. We know that there are a thousand roads that will take you to hell. But there is only one true vine, one source of eternal life. Now that's a challenge to those who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also a challenge to believers. This passage calls us to think about what what are the resources, what is the source of the uh, energy that I find for living day by day. There's an old story told of a a, a missionary uh, working in Central Africa many years ago. And he he lived in a little mission station and he had a a little diesel generator that provided just enough electricity for a light for uh, the, the little church building and for his private home. And some men from a, a, a rural tribe, a, a outlying tribe, came to visit and they were entertained in the, in the missionary's house. And they were absolutely fascinated because he, he turned a little switch in the wall and this light in the middle of the room 
blazed and lit the whole place. They, they watched wide-eyed as a flick, a flick of a switch could make a light come on. So one of the visitors asked, could he have one of these light bulbs? And the missionary, thinking he just wanted this little trinket, gave him one of his extra bulbs. And sometime later, the missionary was doing a tour, visiting these outlying villages. And he came to the village and he visited in the home of the man who had been in his own mission station. And he laughed to himself as he saw, hanging in the middle of the room by a little bit of string, the light bulb. And he attempted to explain, you know, that's not going to do it. You need copper wire. You need a source of current. You're not going to get light just with a bit of string hanging from your roof. And we can be amused at the naivety of African Christians. But let me tell you, many of our African brothers and sisters would be amused at us, indeed bewildered at us. As we so often in this part of the world attempt to live and work for God without that constant dependence upon the true vine. Without his source of power and life flowing through us. Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he speaks also then of of fruitless branches. Fruitless branches. There is another very telling lesson unfolding here in the background of the story. You know what's happening. Jesus said, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Again, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. As Jesus is speaking these words, Judas is at his work. He left the upper room. He made a similar journey. He was on his way to the high priest's home. He was planning, plotting, organizing Jesus' betrayal. Then we know that in a fit of remorse, he would end his own life. He would be to the disciples that object lesson of the un fruitful branch. We must learn this lesson, that fruitfulness is the unquestionable proof of Christian profession. Fruitfulness is the unquestionable proof of Christian profession. Thus, New Testament professor Merrill Tenney has said, Jesus left no place among his followers for fruitless disciples. God pursues fruitlessness, fruitfulness in the life of believers. And he wants us to have every opportunity, every chance to fulfill his calling, to fulfill the glorious purpose, the great plan that he has for each one of us, to bear much fruit. These words are not harsh words. They are words of encouragement. God gives us grace and abundance. We know elsewhere in Luke 13 how Jesus uses another agricultural or horticultural illustration. Luke 13, 6 to 9, he says, and Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his garden or in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, 
you can cut it down. God gives every opportunity all that's required for fruitfulness. Unfortunately, too often there is fruitlessness. Deadwood. It's not just a destination for the stage in Calamity Jane. It's not just a Sky TV series. It's God's judgment on those who are not attached to him, drawing spiritual life from him. Jesus cries out that that people would look to him. He lays down his life on Calvary's hill to make this possible. But if people refuse his gracious gift, his love, they have no complaint when they face a fiery destiny. Jesus tells us the fruitless branch is taken away. It's for no good use except to be burned. Now, Maybe you've had that experience of trying to burn a freshly cut branch. And as it gets into the flames, it begins to spit out sap and to to smoke and to choke. And it struggles to give off any real heat because it has the life within it. The life-giving sap slows its burning. But a withered branch, one that has lain a long time, it it burns brightly because it lacks the life-giving sap within it. Some of you will have been to Hampton Court. You'll have witnessed the the great vine that's planted there originally by uh, Lancelot Capability Brown back in 1769. It's the oldest surviving vine in the United Kingdom. Now it's grown so big that its uh, base at its circumference is 12 feet in diameter. And some of this great vine's branches stretch for 200 feet, 60 odd meters. And yet, because of skillful cutting and pruning, it still produces a rich harvest of grapes every year. Some 600 pounds. Back in 2001, its largest ever crop, 845 pounds of black dessert grapes. It's old. It's enormous. But it's fruitful. Even those branches 200 feet away from the the, the stem of the tree still bear fruit because they are joined to the vine and they draw their life from it. And the same applies to the true vine, Jesus Christ. Our our size, our age, as a congregation or as individuals is not what matters. Our Father, the gardener, is only interested in fruitfulness from us. And we can be fruitful, you can be fruitful, only in abiding in or living in constant communion and daily dependence on Jesus Christ. And this stark warning comes from this passage that if you do not have that day-by-day communion with him, if there is no life within you, you are worth nothing. You're fit for nothing but to burn. The fruitless branch is the person who will not receive Jesus' offer of salvation, this gift of eternal life that he died to give. And all such will experience eternal death in a place where fire is not to be quenched. We see the true vine, we see the fruitless branch, and finally we see the fruitful branch. And the fruitful branch is one that praises the Lord for pruning. Praise the Lord for pruning because this confirms that you are part of his great vine. And that God intends to gain glory from your life. 
Jesus said, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. What's the purpose of pruning? Well, it's to cut off from your life those areas that would reduce those activities that would reduce your fruitfulness for God. Anything that makes us less effective to him, we must be prepared to lose. God's children are called to submit their lives to the pruner's knife. Cutting away other goals, other ambitions, other distractions, other good things to pursue the best thing. It was Willie Mullen who used to say that if the devil can't keep you from being converted, he will do everything in his power to keep you diverted. And we all know how this works. Haven't you set out on a day and you have a long list of objectives and from morning to night you're very busy and you never stop and then you look back and you see, well, I've done none of the things I intended to do in that day. Where's the time gone? I've been doing good things, but I haven't done what I ought to have done. And I know I can spend my days doing good things, even godly things, but I produce nothing because I haven't done what God has primarily set me to do. And we must ensure that we ever keep God's purposes the main thing. You'll know of Amy Carmichael. She wrote and prayed, Rid me, Lord, of every diverting thing. Then she went on to write, What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves, the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusty husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing is cut away that it would lose not to have been lost to keep and gain to lose. Now, if you were able to have a conversation with the vine, the vine would tell you that it is more than content with producing foliage, with greenery and fresh shoots. But the gardener does not plant the vine for its foliage. He is determined to do whatever it takes to produce fruit from his vine. He plants the vine with, pardon the pun, grip expectation. He cuts. And we understand that God's cutting is by the word that he shares with us. The word that is this double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, as we referenced at the start of our time together. And here, throughout this section, time and time again, Jesus speaks of the purifying of his word. The cleansing power of his word that... It's so important for God's people, his children, to keep his commands, to do his bidding, and to fulfill what he would ask of them. To be fruitful branches, we have to experience the pain of pruning. And to be fruitful branches, we have to have this necessity of abiding. All throughout this section, that word abide, meno in Greek, is used over and over again. Abide, abide, abide. It's so significant. What does Jesus mean when he says, abide, abide in me? Well, let me quote J.C. Ryle who said, it means abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer and nearer to me, roll every burden on me, cast your whole weight on me, never let go your hold on me for a moment. 
And this is not something radically new for John's gospel. He says this over and over again. He, he wants people to abide in him as he abides in the Father. He models this to us and then calls us to replicate it. John fourteen twenty. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and to make our home with him. Abiding in Jesus leads to fruitful living. And there is this great causal chain that we see, uh, and and there's far too much in the uh, closing verses of this little section to share with you. But just see how all these things are linked together. Obedience to Jesus' words. Being part of the fellowship of God's people. Expressing that through loving one another. Uh, And this leads to experiencing fullness of joy. All these things are tied together. And in the Christian life, there are many opportunities to show maturity and to display fruitfulness. There are ample opportunities in each and every day to depend completely on Jesus. All that you've got to do is set out to follow his commands, to obey his teaching. And you realize, I can't do this on my own strength. I can't live for him with my own capacities. I need that moment-by-moment utter dependence upon him. You see, it's not about the church you go to or the church you belong to. It's about the Savior you abide in. And we see that God's love is shared together among his people. They are spiritually empowered to love in the right way as they draw that enabling power through abiding in Christ. We become this, his body, the true vine. And ultimately, fruitfulness is the outcome. There is one true vine. And we are branches. And we are fruitful branches deserving his blessing or fruitless branches deserving condemnation. May it be that today we know through abiding in Christ, trusting, leaning, depending utterly and always on him, that we will bear fruit to his glory, which is our purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would do the work within us that enables us to bear much fruit. Lord, we can be busy, we can be active, but if it's not doing the primary and most important things, it's not going to produce the fruit that you require. Help us day by day to wait upon you, to listen to you, to learn of you, and then to live for you. Father, I pray that we would be fruitful people, making much of Jesus, bringing glory to his name, ever pointing people to the one who is the source of our hope and help, our our joy and our life. Jesus, our Lord, the true vine. May our lives be lived solely to his honor and glory. For we ask it in his name. Amen.